Good morning. And almost Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Eve. Um, thanks for being with us this fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, isn't this cool? I did not see this coming. That I was so surprised when I walked in and Mark was setting this up and the purpley, pinky candle things had turned into this. It was so cool. Um, if you see Jacqueline, uh, should thank her, and um, it's really beautiful. So really grateful for that, and um, really grateful for Tom as well for for sharing. Um, I'm really grateful for for Tom and um, mm. Tom is uh, somebody you can look at and just see Jesus. Like I mean, it's been a crazy three years. And uh, it's just Jesus all over his story. So thank you, Tom, for being willing to, to do that. Tom is one of the best evangelists I've ever met. <laughs> um, and I'm grateful that Jesus has made him an evangelist for Jesus. Um, he will also evangelize you uh, for dancing or other things too, but he's really an effective Jesus evangelist. Um, turning your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to go ahead and read this and, and pray, and then if you don't know what's going on here, uh, in Second Samuel, then, then I'll clue you in to, to what's gone on before this. Second Samuel chapter 7, starting at the first verse. Now when the king, David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go. Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over all your, uh, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies, wherever the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you speak to your people by your word. And it should be sufficient, God, but we know that our hearts are by inclination stony, So we need the power of your Holy Spirit that we might be pierced by your word, that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our time in the presence of your word, that we may be shaped and formed, that we might become the people who live as we should, and more importantly, and first, may we be the people who love as we should. Help us to see you, Jesus and have our hearts inflamed with love for you. Thank you for this. Amen. We're actually uh, at Valley Hope. We're going to spend a lot of time with David uh, next year. So I feel like we're kind of jumping in to the end of the story that we're going to be telling over the the months next year. But uh, this story in 2 Samuel immediately follows a story where David brings the Ark uh, of the Covenant, the tabernacle of the Lord, into Jerusalem. Now, David is the second king of Israel. And Jerusalem was not the capital until he established it as the capital. And so he has, and we'll we'll read about this, he, he fights for and wins the city as the capital. And then, not just as a political capital, but but David wants it to be the religious capital as well, so he moves the Ark of the Covenant, this, this box that Israel has carried with it um, for centuries to demonstrate the presence of God with Israel. He brings it into the city. And this has been a bit of a process. It's a, a bit stop-start, trial and error, and error leading to people dying. But finally, in chapter 6, David actually brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city, and he's just so happy about it that he dances his clothes off. And he uh, is thrilled to the point of everybody being ashamed of him because he has danced his clothes off. And David doesn't care because he says, uh, I've not yet begun to show my joy over the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant into the, the capital city of God's people. So here in this this chapter, chapter 7, David is thinking about what's gone on and he's not content with just the Ark of the Covenant being brought in and the the tent-like structure that goes around it, the the tabernacle. He's not content 
with the Ark of the Covenant just being there. He wants God to have a house that's equivalent to or greater than his own house. And he looks at his palace, he looks at his throne room, and he says, why should I have a house when God lives in a, in a tent that can collapse with too much wind? So he's super excited about his idea, and he goes to Nathan the prophet and says, what do you think? And Nathan has an instant reaction like, this is a great idea, go for it, God seems to like you. But then overnight, God speaks to Nathan and says, wait a second, it's not going to work out like that. So in this passage, God first says, look, I don't need a house. I've never asked for this. This is, just to be clear, this is you wanting to do this for me. And in it, there's this kind of rejection. David will not be able to build a temple for God. God will make this explicit. His hands he'll be told, are too bloody from war. So God says, your son will be able to build this. But in this passage, God makes a covenant between him and David. And this is, if you're tracking the story of the Bible, this is a a high point, a touchstone, a pillar in the story. This is, 2 Samuel 7 is this Davidic covenant where something significant and momentous is happening, where God pledges himself to David. And what he does is he basically hangs his reputation with the reputation of David. And he says he's going to do a number of things for Israel through David's family. He says, I'm going to to make your name famous, David. David's household will be famous. I'm going to give Israel rest. I'm going to give my people a place where they'll be safe from harm. And he tells them, your son will be able to build the house. And this is actually, in fact, what happens later in the story. David dies and one of his sons, Solomon, becomes king and builds this majestic temple. So his son will be allowed to build the temple that he's not allowed to build. And then he says, I will establish your throne forever. And your son will sit on the throne forever. And so David receives this promise. God will be covenanted to David specifically, to his people Israel forever. He will do this thing through David's family. Now, This is actually speaking to a number of themes that have been running all through the Old Testament up to this point and will continue to run through the Old Testament. There are two questions that are constantly brought up for the people of God. One, where does God live? And two, who leads God's people? And this is a a problem that the narrative of the Old Testament has been putting its finger on for this whole story. And it starts way at the beginning. The the beginning of the book of Genesis is clear in saying and making a point of saying that God comes and, and walks with His people in the Garden of Eden. 
God is, in a sense, at home with people. And this is the way that things were meant to be, that God would be at home with His people. And one of the most significant consequences of sin in the book of Genesis is that God is no longer at home with His people. The people get, in a sense, kicked out of home. They're ushered out the door of Eden. They cannot live with God anymore. But then what happens is God gives them a way to be kind of reintroduced the idea of living and and being at home with Him. They have this thing, this tabernacle, this box. They have signs of His presence with Him. And they carry this thing with them. And at various times they they lose it. They, they use it how they shouldn't. Or they treat it like they shouldn't. Because they often treat God like they shouldn't. But there's always this question. How can God be with His people? And David is concerned with this question, and ultimately we can see that God is concerned with this question as well. He wants, through David's family, to somehow make his home with his people again. So, where is God, and then who leads his people? This, is, this second question is of central importance to these two books, First and Second Samuel. Because Israel has had this long history with mostly failing records of who their leader will be. You've got the big ones, you've got Abraham and Moses, and then you've got like hundreds of years of up and down leadership. In the book of 1 Samuel, before this, the book before this, the people say, look, we really just want a king. That's what we want. Everybody else has a king. We want a king too. And God tells them, you don't want a king. And the people say, appreciate the advice, but we would like a king, please. And so God gives in to them. He gives them over to this, their desire. He says, fine, you can have a king. And their first king is Saul. And Saul is pretty much exactly what God warned them would happen. Kind of flashy and good at first, and then Saul starts doing things and goes crazy. And so David comes in, and he becomes this picture of the ideal king for Israel. But God is meant to be the only king of Israel. That is how things have worked up until Saul That's how things were supposed to work before the kings came. That there wouldn't be any other governor. There wouldn't be any king in the land. It's just God would be the king of the people. And so when Israel gets these substitutes for God, things go terribly, terribly wrong. So in David's line, this covenant says, this problem is somehow going to be addressed that there will be a, a kingship, a monarchy that is established that will actually be a more faithful representative of what it would be like if God was king. And so Israel is tied up in these questions. How will God live with us? Who will rule Israel? And Israel is unresolved on these answers. They are 
hungry to see this covenant and every other promise that God has given them resolved and brought to fruition. They key in on these parts of this covenant that says your enemies will be crushed. There will be no more violence done to you because they are people who have had violence done to them again and again and again. So when the gospel stories come and the gospels start telling the story of God fulfilling expectations, they have this kind of promise in mind. How might God answer these questions that he might dwell with us and that we might be rightly ruled? Their expectations are looking understandably in the wrong direction. They want somebody to come in and deliver Israel. They want the next David to come and be the warrior that kills all the giants, that chases the enemies out of the land. And Jesus comes, born in David's town. And the first people that recognize him, apart from his parents, are the people that were David's people. Not just from Bethlehem, but they were the people that were also out in the fields tending sheep. Because this is, this is the surprising synchronicity of the two stories. This is the way the two stories of David and Jesus get tied up. David is told, I have brought you from tending the sheep up to this position of power and authority. And all the while, God is making promises that he will be the good shepherd. And so in Jesus' story, it's not an accident that shepherds are the ones who first recognize this baby king of Israel. It is entirely keeping with what God has always wanted to do. So the shepherd king is announced to shepherds in David's hometown and God starts to reveal to His people how He intends to answer these two questions. How will God live with us? How will we be ruled rightly? The writer of the Gospel of John makes this plain in the very beginning of his Gospel. He starts to answer this first question when he says that the Word that created everything and made the people of Israel came into the story of Israel. What he says is the Word that spoke everything into existence tabernacles with His people. He takes on this similar language to say, remember that thing that Israel carried around to show us that God was present? That thing was a tabernacle. And here in Jesus, God Himself tabernacles among his people. Because God's surprising answer to the question, how might God dwell with us again, was not answered in some majestic structure, but the taking upon himself of flesh and bone. And the question then that they also needed answered, how might God be rule, ruler over his people, was not answered with some sword in hand, with violence, with blood on his boots. But instead, the king comes into Israel's story 
and disarms their worst enemies by letting the rod of discipline that should have been given to the people of Israel fall upon his own back and let the sword of the conquerors come and pierce his own side so that he could disarm and strip them of power from within. In the story of the Gospels, we are explicitly seeing God answer these questions in one person. They're not two separate answers. How might God dwell with His people? How might Israel be ruled rightly? With the pronouncement that Jesus is Lord, we have the fulfillment of God's plan to do both of these things in Him. The incarnation, the statement that God becomes one of us is a statement that God is so much better than what we could expect or imagine. Now, there is no more place in Jerusalem where you must go to know where God might live. There is no building that you must go to to see the evidence of the presence of God. There is only God dwelling with His people wherever the people of God are found. In Jesus who comes as King, we now no longer have to hope that any political leader will be good enough or smart enough. We now no longer have to look to any other person and hope that they might rightly reflect the rule of God over His people. Jesus establishes Himself as the king over this now disparate and scattered nation. And here in Advent, we look back to this promise that God has both fulfilled and is yet fulfilling. And this Advent, if you are feeling displaced and homeless, if you are reading these words and seeing that God has promised that all violence would cease for His people and that His people would find a place, a geography of rest, You can look to the King Himself and trust that He will establish you and plant you beside still waters and treat you as one of His little sheep forever. And it is okay if you are displaced and homeless and unsure that things are as they should be because they are not all as they should be. And so in Advent, we trust that God who came is yet coming back. That the shepherd who has tended us now will settle us and establish us forever. The God who is with us presently will be with us presently one day in the flesh. That he might forever watch and care for his flock and we might forever live in light of his face. We can look back to the coming of a king who rescued us into his kingdom and gave us citizenship, not by the, sh- the shedding of others' blood, not by the trampling of other powers and, and the spilling of other people's blood, but by the giving of his own blood. He gives us our citizenship. That when the words of Jesus are spoken, that we might pray to God as our Father, we look back to the promise that he gave to David where he says, I will look upon him as a son and you can trust and know that he looks upon you as a son or a daughter because he has seated you in Jesus' seat. And the God who surely makes you a son or a daughter will for us forever establish 
a home, a safe place for you. The giving of the covenant of David is for us a preaching of the gospel. And we can forever be at home in a place where God is with us and God is our king. About a month and a half ago, I was listening to a, uh, an album um, by this, um, this band called The Grey Havens um, I really like, and I don't know why I never really paid attention to this song before, um, but they wrote this song called At Last the King, and as I was sort of looking ahead to Advent, I just thought, oh, this is, this is a brilliant uh, Christmas song. So uh, I wanted you to, to listen to this song uh, today, and we're going to put it a video up on the screen. I think it's a, a YouTube video. It's just a lyric video. There's no animation or anything. Um, but you'll be able to hear the song and read the words. Um, but this is called At Last the King by the Grey Havens. At last David's son came into the story and the quiet and the darkness, this long-expected, unforeseen Jesus is, uh, is the king that we hope for. If you, are, if you are lost in the darkness and the quiet, you are exactly in the place where God comes to rescue. At last, the king has come, and we look forward this season to when the king comes again and finishes his conquest, his invasion. This is a good season to look back and to look forward. Um, would you pray with me that we would be Advent people more faithfully? We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the beauty, the intricacy, the simplicity, the majesty of your plan. We thank you, Lord Jesus. You would come, David's son. You would be the kind of shepherd king that we needed. You come in the midst of a story of frequent failure. And we still put our hands up today and say that that is still us. And yet you have done all that is necessary to seat us at your table with favored status. You have made us sons and daughters. We thank you for the coming of the King. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would still make us a waiting, watching, expectant people. Help our, help our bellies to be grumbling in hunger for a spiritual feast. Help our eyes to always look to the horizon to watch for your coming. And yet somehow, God, help us to always be a people who are at rest and grateful for all that you've done, that it truly is finished. At last, the King has come, and our hearts rejoice. 
Help us to be a rejoicing people, Lord Jesus. To see what we ought to see. Amen.